You're listening to Janine Preston, and this is a podcast recorded for Life is a Beach. Welcome, Wayne Duvenage from Outer. I'm Janine Preston, and um, we're going to be talking to you today about Outer and what it has, what it, where it comes from, who it is, and, and what are you all about? Okay, so so Outer, I think most people certainly in Gauteng recall the Etol debacle. Um, society was extremely upset with that, and we believed something had to be done. Um, so initially, Arta stood for the organization, uh, sorry, Opposition to Urban Tolling Alliance. Uh, it was set up as a, with, with an alliance of business associations to challenge government's detailed decision. We could see the scheme was fraught with corruption, with uh, inefficiencies. It just wasn't going to work. And our view at the time was, you know, we don't want to live in a country where laws are unmanageable, unenforceable. Uh, if government is going to introduce new policy and laws, it needs to demonstrate that it can uh, do so properly and meaningfully. So you don't get a situation where half the people pay and the other half don't pay because those those types of uh, policies just spiral downwards and they create chaos in society. And um, government refused to listen to us at the time. And we we did a number of strategies, ended up litigating against Sanral, interdicted the launch. Then it became a big technical uh, legal battle uh, and a very costly one, by, uh, mind you. And, and, and eventually we decided, look, the Supreme Court allowed, wouldn't allow us to stop from Sanral from proceeding, but they allowed us to introduce a collateral challenge, a people's challenge, if and when Sanral started summonsing. And that's where we, we went to society and said, look, we can do this. We can fight every single case on your behalf. We'll have to build the team to do that. It'll have to be a legally uh, a focused team, and we will fight uh, in your corner so long as you fund this initiative. And that's how Arta started. And then as we started to do that, society said, look, why just details? You know, why don't you challenge government and tackle maladministration and corruption? And we did. We expanded our mandate. We changed from the organization or opposition to Urban Tolling Alliance, kept the same acronym and called ourselves the organization Undoing Tax Abuse with a very focused mandate on tackling maladministration corruption where public sector is abusing state pay, uh, state money, taxpayers' money, uh, and we went after uh, those in positions of authority who really abused the authority. And that was in about 2016, and we grew from a three-person team to now 44 people, all paid uh, uh, market-related salaries. These are legal specialists. These are investigators communication specialist, project managers, and we've done, uh, aside from the ETOL matter, about 210 different projects, 83% success rate. Some projects take ages, like the Dudumnyeni delinquent director case, uh, and others are quite quick, you know. So we have about 45 projects open at any one time, and the team's working on those, and we've done state capture. We have actually done quite a lot, and I'll get a little bit into that. Uh, in the rest of our discussion, I'm sure, Janine. But, but I must say, it's been an exciting journey, and it's been one where there's no textbook for this stuff. It's not like opening a restaurant or a hotel. Uh, this is uh, no, you had is, no road to follow. <laughs> yeah, we had to, we had to, we had to devise a new way of doing 
uh, civil activism. We didn't just want to be a typical NGO that exposed corruption and then did nothing about it. We wanted to take action. And, and what we learned through the whole ETOL matter is legal cases can be expensive. That's why we had to build our own legal competency. And so we have advocates, Stefani Fick, and uh, uh, four or five uh, legal specialists under her, and three investigators, uh, and a team that, 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 that really takes these cases and develops them. Uh, and then we use outside senior counsel and small law firms to keep our costs down, senior counsel that gives us good rates, and we go and do the hard yards of, of, of tackling those who abuse our funds. And tell me something, do the projects, the projects that, that you tackle, are they brought to your attention or do you have investigators that actually go out there and see what needs to be done for various um, uh, projects that you have under your belt? Yeah, so we've got a, a whistleblowing hotline. Uh, we try and categorize the project into the specific areas. We focus sort of transport issues, uh, health with uh, the COVID matters, uh, water is a big one, energy, and, um, you know, where the state-owned entities are, where SAA is, uh, ESKIM, um, and nuclear energy is another big one. Uh, and, and, and essentially, when it comes to corruption, uh, whistleblowers come to us daily with, um, with, with facts, but we need facts. Sometimes it's really high, pie in the sky, high level stuff, hunches. We can't work on those. So those cases that give us the evidence of corruption, the evidence of gross maladministration, we then advance those, put them into a project approval process, which our exco is involved in. They go through a hopper and eventually if they get approved because we've got capacity and we've got enough information, it's the right type of project, then we take them on. As I said, we've done 200 of those uh, over the last uh, four years, five years. And, and, and so it's a selection process. Uh, and, 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 and it's a very clear methodology. Once we, once we approve a project, then we start to uh, do the final research on it, investigations, get our investigations team uh, looking into what are the facts, getting more facts from the whistleblowers. As the project managers start to understand where we're going to take this project, which line are we going to tackle it? Uh, is it a is it a legal case? Is it a, a criminal complaint? Is it a complaint to an oversight body, parliament? Uh, where do we get the best bang for our buck? Uh, and, and so it starts to unfold. We engage with the authorities uh, after our, our research and investigations. Then we expose the issue if they ignore us. Uh, and we start building the legal cases if need be. And we mobilize. We've got a protest unit as well and a very busy team. Now tell me, in, in terms of do you only cover government projects or are there corporate projects that you cover too? So our, our focus is specifically in the area of um, state uh, spending. So we state have the checkbook. They sign the checkbooks and we go after people who allow the abuse to happen. Of course, we'll also go after companies who, you know, corruption's a two-sided coin. There's the state itself doing the paying, and then there's the receiving side. That's business normally. Uh, Guptas were a big feature of the business side doing, doing procurement with government. But many other companies, many, many other companies, as we've seen in, in the COVID, uh, um, the, the, the uh, PPE procurement processes. So, so it's a combination. Um, but yes, where we've got enough evidence, we go after individuals. So we've laid charges against Anosh Singh, 
uh, Brian Molefe, uh, Mark Pemensky, people at Eskom, Transnet. Uh, so we go after the individuals as well. Uh, Salim Essa, part of the Guptas uh, um, sort of brigade that, that enabled so much of this corruption. Uh, but the, the important thing is when you go after uh, people, not entities, because it's people who do the transgressions and it's people who feel the pain of those transgressions when you hold them to account. And once you've once you've gone through the process of the project, and the project obviously has a beginning, a middle, and an end, does the project at the end, do you find that when you've got a final answer and the person has been held accountable, is there change? Do you see the change? Well, you know, um, in, in, initially the, the state uh, criminal justice system was hijacked by... Uh, by the Jacob Zuma cabal, quite frankly. So there was not much accountability. That's why we made the decision in the Dudumieni matter to take matters into our own hands and lay a civil claim against her um, uh, when it comes to charging her from society's point of view as a delinquent director. Very expensive case. Uh, yes, the change does come when people are held accountable. And A, they need to be removed and are often removed from from the process, from the system. Uh, but B, it starts to send a message to others. So we're seeing a lot of interest in delinquent director cases, for instance, uh, complaints to Psyche, complaints to Urba, these are oversight bodies uh, that also bring the pain to bear on transgressors. Uh, but not enough has happened, uh, Janine, not enough. Um, we need to see uh, far more action when it comes to the NPA and the SIU and the Hawks doing their doing their part because we can't prosecute. It's not our role. It's not our space. Uh, they can. And what we are seeing is as these organizations build their capacity and are less prone to being hijacked by uh, government forces, we will start to see a change in society. But the extent of corruption right down to local government level is massive. Uh, and unless we see a meaningful shift in accountability, um, I'm afraid we're going to see a lot of corruption still taking place. So the president speaks of, you know, the National Anti-Corruption Forum, which is starting to take shape now. We're one of the uh, people on those teams, uh, both in the health, the national committee, the health committee and, and local government. But uh, unless we see meaningful action taking place and not just an Ace Nagashula and a Bongani Bongo and a few people being taken off to court, corruption is rife throughout all levels of government. I think we're going to see things unfolding going forward. But up until now, it's been a bit of a desperate, hopeless space uh, from a society point of view. But from an artist's perspective, our projects and 200 in the greater scheme of things is not enough. But it is something. And we've always had this view that you, you, you can never adopt this approach to say that um, it's just too much. You're never going to win this battle. Uh, you have to do something and you have to start somewhere. And that's our approach. You know, there's this saying by Edward Burke that uh, the biggest mistake is those who do nothing because they can only do a little. Uh, we believe that a lot of people doing little bits uh, make a big change in this country. And so we work hard. But I think that's projects. what Arta what has really done is it's brought people together under one umbrella, if you like, as Arta being the umbrella, because you took that brave step to challenge, mm. I remember, on the toll gates. Um, and that's when Arta really made a big footprint in this country was through the toll gates debacle. Um, I mean, I, every time I drive under the, the toll gate, I always think of you, um, Wayne Duvernay of Arta. <laughs> 
And I think, gee, I yeah. wonder where Wayne is now. Um, and interestingly enough, that's what really got, got you noticed. And then, st- then you started to, to take on more and more projects and we began to hear more and more about you. And I think as a society, we've taken note of what you've done and we followed suit to try and stop corruption in this country. Yes, look, it, it, it was, um, it was something a bit unknown at the time. We didn't know where this was going to take us. And I must say, I had to make a choice to continue in my role as the CEO of Avis at the time and heading up the Car Rental Association, uh, or do this fight because you couldn't. I couldn't do both. Um, it became big, um, and Arta had been formed, and Arta had interdicted the launch. And I think we gave people hope and we gave people an understanding of their power. And if they collectively stand together, we can challenge irrational decisions by government. And so that's what we set out to do. So I left the corporate world thinking that this would be a short-term project, maybe a year at most. But it's turned out to morph into a much bigger active a civil action entity, as you say, with employed people funded by the public. Um, you know, we've got uh, tens of thousands of supporters giving us an average of 120 rand a month. And with that money, and we're a non-profit organization, we employ specialists, this team that I spoke about, and we go about making this difference. And the, on the ETOL matter, what the public really enjoyed was that we would defend them, we would support them, and we would challenge government. This scheme, we could see, was born in sin. It was absolutely unnecessary. The road widening was necessary. The funding mechanism was unnecessary. It was grossly expensive and unworkable. And we've brought it to its knees. The compliance levels are around about 15%. Government's about to pull the plug, find a new funding mechanism, which they should have done 10 years ago. Had they done that, the roads would have been paid off already. But these expensive lessons that we as society, unfortunately, have to pick up, but government hopefully learns its lesson that society will not roll over and bow down to bad decisions. We will fight back and push back. And you're seeing a lot of that starting to take place in local government at the moment where our municipalities are failing us. So there's a lot of work to do in this space, and we're geared up for it. And I'll talk to you a little bit about some of our plans going forward. I see that uh, while we're on the subject of the toll gates, I see that you have been tackling the sand rail issue, and that's become quite a, a, a big a big issue lately in this country. Yeah. So, can you tell us a little bit more about the sand rail issue? Yeah. So, so sand rail, um, uh, you know, they're good. They're good road builders. We can't take that away from them, and. They're a state and entity that works well uh, when they work with the best interest of the people, core to their decisions. But what happened is they lost their way on the ETOL matter, and we believe they've lost their way partially on the long-distance tolling matters, where the concessionaires, we believe, are are profiteering heavily out of these uh, N3TC, the track and the and the Bequena routes. So we've asked Sanral for all that information. We want to start doing some analysis of what that money is being used for. The tariffs have gone up uh, well above inflation over the last 15 years. Um, some of these concessions are coming to an end. We believe the toll tariffs on these routes should be reducing just to keep the maintenance up as opposed to paying off capital expenditure. Uh, and, and that's really what we're trying to do around Sanral is understand, is their financial prudence and, uh, correct and are they working in the best interest of society? If not, we have to hold them to account.
And I think that goes with, with all the projects um, that, that you're currently managing. What is the way forward for Outer? Where are you currently and what is your way forward? Sorry, Janine, the, the sound drops a little bit. Um, uh, all our projects, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, we, in, in all our projects, we take calculated views on, on exactly what needs to happen. SAA is the next big project that we are working on, have been for some time, uh, with Dudum Yeni being declared now delinquent. We need to go after the other board members, but, but that entity, that state-owned entity is just grossly unnecessary. It's not core like Eskom is. Um, Eskom is on the mend, by the way. We've got the right management team, but the damage done is massive, and we're going to bear the cost of energy increases for time and for a long time. And sadly, the poorest of the poor suffer because they don't move themselves and can't afford to move themselves off this grid, this very expensive grid. SAA is an unnecessary core state, non-core state-owned entity, as is Denel. They, the state needs to disinvest, get out of those, so we don't have to apply any more taxpayers' money into it. Um, and 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 there's a lot of work when it comes to governance and managing our money, which uh, the state is is you know I think we heard the budget speech. We're a little bit impressed by the fact that there are no increases in taxes. They can't push that envelope anymore. But what they're not doing is reducing the cost of government fast enough. Uh, we're pleased that they're not going to allow um, wages to go up in the public sector. But there's a fight coming with the unions. So. Yeah, lots happening. I can just imagine. Now, tell me, where, where do we go from here? What, what are your plans for the future for Outer? Well, um, that's a nice question because what we've also realized is we need to continuously innovate and look at our strategies going forward. And what we are uh, uh, busy unf uh, unfolding right now and, and going to be launching shortly is a platform and applications and uh, using digital technology to empower people that operate and live in local government. So in municipalities, uh, people congregate in communities, they congregate in organized communities, ratepayer associations, business chambers and others um, who have over the past not really applied their power and their strength in holding local government to account. And it is in local government where the biggest plundering of resources and corruption is taking place, maladministration. So we see our cities and towns collapsing, infrastructures collapsing, no maintenance, no money is being spent on maintenance, uh, water systems are collapsing, sewage systems are spewing effluent into the rivers, potholes uh, get worse, traffic lights stay down for longer. And, uh, and so we are developing these applications to empower these local organized communities to play their role in holding local government to account. And here we mean participating more in the integrated development plan, scrutinizing the budgets and the financial spend, developing, helping them to develop court cases and court challenges to hold people to account, individuals, lock them up, uh, uh, don't allow uh, spending to take place, questioning expenditure on large projects. I mean, how is it possible? that we could uh, have a budget passed and spent before one toilet was uh, spent at, you know, 14 million rand for 20 toilets is unacceptable. And that's because there's no transparency in procurement. So making sure there's greater transparency in procurement at local government level so that we can bring about and if need be organized uh, legal tax revolts that enable citizens to take over the running of their towns and their municipalities, as we're seeing in places like Makana, uh, uh, um, Costa, Harry Smith. We're going to take best practice and unroll it through a network 
a well-organized network across the country so that we can empower citizens to play a bigger and meaningful role uh, in the running of the municipalities and remove the political um, uh, energy and the political uh, if impact uh, that gets in the way of good governance at, in, in municipalities. And wouldn't it be good to see towns being able to elect their own mayor without the mayor belonging to a specific party? Because that way his interest is in making the town work. Yeah, exactly. So, so municipal managers, uh, CFOs, they need to not have the political influence that is happening. Uh, imagine a town run by independent candidates that are organized and networked in those towns as a political entity, but not behaving like a political entity, uh, but having to cross the hurdles so that the IEC ticks the box that they can get the proportional representative seats. And this is the complexity in local government. Unless you organize and you register as a political party in a municipality, you will not get access to the proportional representative seats. So you might have the majority of the wards won by independent candidates, but you won't control the town. So you need to do this properly and in a structured fashion that you can run the town as citizens uh, and that will bring about meaningful change. And we're going to see a lot of that happening in these local elections, which happen in August, September this year. And do you think the elections are going to go ahead with all the pandemic? The current sort yeah. of we're going in lockdown, out of lockdown, etc.? Yeah, they have to. They can't not go ahead. We've seen uh, in, in Uganda, elections have been held in the States recently in the height of the pandemic. There's no excuse to cancel the elections. Uh, we do believe the ANC and the EFF will do as much as they can to try and do that because it suits them. But we must never allow that to happen. We've gone five years between these elections. The political uh, interference is causing chaos in our towns and cities, and we need to remove them very quickly. So they have to have their local elections uh, in August, September this year. And what is your opinion of the way the vaccine, you know, things around the pandemic, for instance, the COVID-19 lockdowns, um, managing when we've gone from one lockdown to another, and then, of course, also the managing of the vaccines coming in the country and finding they were almost expired. Um, do you think that's got anything to do with corruption, or do you think that's just somebody who just didn't notice? Look, um, the pandemic itself with the PPE procurement, we've seen corruption has been rife. Um, fortunately, uh, the SIU and government quickly reacted with civil society and exposure that took place, and there's going to be a lot more accountability in that space. That is unfolding. When it comes to the vaccine rollout, here we're dealing with competencies, and let's face it. Uh, government doesn't shine in glory when it comes to logistics and managing logistics and uh, getting the rollout done. So it is lethargic. I mean, it was an absolute sin that we could uh, uh, bring in vaccines that are close to expiry dates um, and, 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 and then have a struggle to get these vaccines out. I mean, doing 10,000 a day is not going to get us anywhere. We'll be here forever and a day vaccinating the country. Uh, you know, just cold storage companies that do logistics, business could roll this out uh, to the clinics much better and, and coordinate it than government could. But be that as it may, I think we're overpaying for our vaccines, uh, as we could hear and see. Um, we are slow off the mark and we are lethargic when it comes to distribution. But I do believe that government is engaging with academia, with business, with civil society to do this better. Uh, and we'll be watching this space and hopefully we get it right. 
but you can bet your bottom dollar there will be glitches and there will be problems. I think going forward, um, the world has changed to a new norm. Will that change government as well? Will we change from being a, a corrupt government to being a not-so-corrupt government thanks to Arta? Well, um, you know, I think civil society has to up, its, uh, up the ante here. Um, we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, I don't think corruption is going to go away overnight. We were hoping that Cyril Ramaphosa would be a lot more forceful in this space. I mean, by now, we should have had, uh, uh, you know, corruption is a priority crime. It should have corruption courts. We should be a long way down the road of, 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 of holding uh, many, many corrupt people to account. And there are hundreds of them. People like Batabili Dlamini, Faith Mutambi, Mosse Benzizwani should not be in, uh, in, in Parliament. They are. They're sitting there. We've laid treason charges against them. Ace Magashula, Jacob Zuma, they should all be in jail a long time ago. So, so corruption and the, and the criminal justice system is moving a bit lethargically. Um, I think the new norm when it, comes to, when it comes to digital communications, the new norm in business, the new norm in the way we engage is here. And it's going to bring about greater efficiency. We have to put government under pressure to also switch over into uh, the digital space a lot faster uh, so that we don't have to have, you know, long waiting times for driver's license renewals and all of that stuff. It's an absolute debacle. Our government is, is so lethargic and not user-friendly when it comes to small business, when it comes to business enablement. Uh, but we do believe that there's work that's going to be unfolding. Civil society is becoming more organized. Government is more receptive now to our roles, uh, the roles that we play in, in, in parliamentary oversight. Uh, and I think we're a far, in a far better place than we were uh, two years ago. But there's a lot more work to be done. And it's moving in the right direction. And that's something to celebrate. And I think in terms of uh, the way we now, as you were saying, the new way we do business, which is on Zoom, which is using the internet, which is the, dig the, digital, um, the digital highway as such, um, do you see the government putting in better internet infrastructure, going the route of more fiber and making it more accessible to the masses? Yes, I don't think they've got any choice. Um, so bandwidth expansion is coming, it's happening. The price of data has to come down and quite frankly, the world is starting to see data uh, as, 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 as a right now, as becoming a, a fundamental right for, for citizens like water, like electricity. Um, uh, soon data, uh, uh, you know, because you don't want the poor to be excluded from access to information. And so data is going to have to be free largely uh, to society. So, yes, we do see government playing in the space. But again, uh, they really need to do so a lot quicker. I see Google is coming into the country and trying to make internet and fast internet available via advertising options uh, and trying to put it in as many um, as many places as they possibly can. Um, in terms of just going forward with now with the new norm, um, do you see yourselves being working from home just in a, on, a, on a company basis? Do you work from home? Do you do you still go into the office? Um, how does that work when you need to get together? Yeah, so it's a good question. We, we're using digital. In fact, we were we were all ready for this as the pandemic hit, so we switched quite quickly. Um, we have an office. We rotate our time at the office, so various teams meet on different days. So we are in the office at least once a week. I spend a little bit more time there. 
um, and, 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 and to each day. So Exco meets on a Monday, the comms team Tuesday, accountability team Wednesdays and so forth. Uh, we've got a boardroom, reception, our server room. So we have a home, but it's scaled right down. We hot desk uh, because we don't need as many offices and desks as we did in the past. We're able to save 800,000 rand a year on our rent as a result of that. And we've switched over to the digital space. A lot of our work can be done uh, in the digital space. So I think like many companies, many auditing companies, um, uh, forensic companies, uh, uh, you just name them, uh, they, they have moved almost uh, full-time to an online space. It has changed the way business has been done, and we are part of that as well. So it's been good for us because we've able, been able to reduce a lot of costs and at the same time up our productivity, do more projects, be more focused. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been a good um, – that's the win that's come out of this unfortunate pandemic. Has it affected your ability to go on site, to talk to people, to um, to be able to, to investigate as you used to do in terms of a one-to-one basis? Not at all. It's it's actually improved it because, um, you know, our investigators still meet when we need to meet in person, but that's a small part of our team. Our communications is all done digitally, media statements. Uh, we now used to go into TV studios and radio studios uh, because they hadn't switched over fast enough to digital. Now everything is done so we can access, uh, the media can access us a lot quicker um, on the various uh, things that are breaking uh, and news stories that are breaking ongoingly. Um, all our projects are done online. Uh, we've got project management systems, research that's done. So no, in fact, it's made us far more efficient and hasn't hampered our ability to do business at all. But um, in terms of going to find the perpetrator, as uh, for want of a better word, no. um, often do they not hang up on you or do they just not re- return an email? Whereas when, you, when you're standing at the office door, you're very hard to say, no, I'm not going to see you. No, in fact, we, we yeah we very seldom went to the offices. We were always uh, um, sending the communications via the sheriff's office. So the sheriff is still doing their work. The uh, we couriers deliver final demands and letters. Um, we meet with the whistleblowers sometimes, uh, but a lot of that now is done online. The information is provided online, uh, and it is up to the police. The police have to do their work, so so we very seldom uh, went to the offices. We have a mobilization team, so we do protest outside of offices and do handovers still, so it hasn't stopped us uh, in that regard, but that was always a very minor amount, the physical uh, contact in our work. It's always been research, laying charges, uh, exposures, presentations to parliament, um, presentations to Zonda Commission, uh, and so on. Uh, it really has, this new norm has, has impacted our work positively. Well, I'm very pleased to hear that. And, and certainly it looks like you're on the right track where it comes to um, assisting the society on knowing which way to go as opposed to having lots of fractional um, people in, in, in different fractions saying, okay, we're going to stand up against corruption. This way we have one cohesive company through whom it all, um, it all goes to the right space. And obviously you have the right contacts, you have the right media space. And, and without you, I think this country would really, would really battle to take on the big guns, as it were. Um, and I, for one, from, from my perspective, and I'm sure I speak for the country to say thank you to you as, uh, and your team, Wayne Duvenage of, of Alta as the CEO and your team, to say thank you for taking on the role that you have and, and tackling the issues that we find we are too small to take on. 
Yeah, look, thanks, Janine. I'd like to think that uh, we, we do it all, but we don't. We can't get to it all. There are a lot of good organizations out there as well. The uh, Helen Suzman Foundation, Corruption Watch, um, Section 27, Right to Know, all doing good work. We've got to, we've got to work a lot closer together. Um, we've all got different mandates, chasing the same supporters sometimes. Uh, but yes, I think the ARTA team has really raised the flag of what active citizenry is about and what we can do as individuals when we put our mind to it and fight corruption and tackle it head on. So, so thanks for those kind words. I'll pass them on to our team. This is a team effort and we couldn't do it without our supporters who donate to us every month. Without them, uh, we wouldn't exist. Can you just, in closing, give us a closing statement and possibly the information that we require to be able to get hold of you and your team? Yeah. So, so look. I, I mean, it, it, this our closing statement is all about um, become active, become an active citizen. And if you don't have the time, and we don't have the time most of the time, support those who do this work uh, through whatever uh, gesture you can. Small donations. It's easy to do so with Arta. Our Arta website at outa.co.za. Arta.co.za has got all the information there. And by uh, through the click of a mouse, within five minutes, you can be signed up as a supporter decide what you want to donate whether it's 50 rand a month cup of uh, cost of a cup of coffee these days or 500 rand a month as small businesses are doing um, put it in there it's an automatic debit order you can cancel it anytime you can change it uh, just just go on and that way you can feel like you're participating you get our newsletters you get information about the various projects and you uh, really do understand uh, exactly what it means and, and, and feel what it means to be an active citizen so join us at today and, and become part of the movement. And how do they join? Uh, online at arta.co.za. Just click on join now and uh, have your bank details ready and you just load your details in there. It's very quick and easy and uh, and, and we'll, do, it's a, we'll do a debit order uh, or a monthly payment, however you want to do it uh, uh, online. So um, my advice to everyone is let's go and support uh, Wayne and his team. Uh, I think what you've done is an amazing job and I really thank you for your time today um, uh, that you've spent with us and, and, and given us a little bit more insight as to what Outa does and what it plans to do. Yeah, thanks very much and never lose hope because when you lose hope, you switch off the lights, you, you stop doing what you've got to do. Let's work together and become more active this year, next year and the years going. Because this hole is deeper, Janine, but we can get out of it. We've been in worse places before. And I'm looking forward to the future and looking forward to more active citizens coming on board. And thank you for your time as well. You're listening to Janine Preston and this is a podcast recorded for Life is a Beach. 